Today, we begin a new series. It's uh, kind of a strange title. This new series over the next uh, week is called, we're calling it The Mothers of Jesus, plural. The Mothers of Jesus because there are certain women that are marked out as special in the family tree of Jesus. And we want to look at each one of these and talk about the contribution that they bring to the person of Jesus Christ. So we're going to read just uh, their identification in Matthew chapter 1. One of the things that I would point out to you when we we look at genealogies, um, I'm hopeful maybe next year that we're going to be able to get a church-wide project of reading through the Bible in a year. And uh, when people get to the genealogies, people of our ilk get to the genealogies, uh, we just kind of rush through them as quick as we can because they're all those strange, unfamiliar names. One of the interesting points about the genealogies is I had a professor, a missions professor, um, that was a professor in Cameroon. And he said that in the peoples among whom he worked, that the genealogies of, uh, of Matthew and Luke particularly were read very, very carefully. They were studied at length because in Cameroon, you were never known for being Jim Larson. You are known for being the brother of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the grandson of so-and-so, the nephew of so-and-so, and your identity was part of the larger picture. And, um, and so the genealogies are very, very important. And we're going to read just the first six verses of Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron was the father of Ram, Ram was the father of Amminadab, Amminadab was the father of Nation, Nation was the father of Salmon, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of, uh, or excuse me, I skipped one. Solomon was the father of Boab, whose mother was Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been a Uriah's wife. This is God's word. Now, as you read that, you read a whole bunch of names. And the genealogy goes on for two more sections, each section containing 14 names. That's kind of a memory aid for people to actually memorize these genealogies. That's how important they were. But there's something that may have, may have stood out to you, and that all of those things, there were, there were four names that, that jumped out that said there were, they had a particular woman for a mother. And there were four women that were named. Mary makes the fifth of the, quote, mothers of Jesus, and she is the actual mother of of Jesus. But uh, in these genealogies, if we were going to design a genealogy for the Son of God, because the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, if we were going to design a genealogy 
we would design it very carefully, wouldn't we? We would make sure that we had the best of the best, the cleanest of the clean, the most upright of the most upright. We would make sure that we had the influence movers of their day. We would make sure that everybody who looked at those were properly vetted so that there was no, there were no dirty, uh, there was no dirty laundry, no skeletons in the closet. That is not the genealogy of Jesus. The genealogy of Jesus does not necessarily identify with the best that we have to offer. The genealogy of Jesus identifies with us warts and all. But in that genealogy, there are five people that really gather our attention because for some reason, in a man's world, God comes to a screeching halt and says, I want you to get to know these women. Because they are really, really important. They have something to offer that if you miss it, or if you misinterpret it, you're going to find yourselves lacking and who Jesus is and what God does and how he does it. Now when we read the Bible and we talk about reading through the Bible in one year, uh, many of you have read through the Bible, but a number of you have not. And as you read through the Bible, we normally think of the Bible in terms of our children's storybooks where we gather our kids together and open up and and read the story where it's just kind of a nice, sweet, it's, it's kind of like a Disney story. Where everything is sweet and the birds are singing and, and the weather is good and everything turns out and they all lived happily ever after. If that's your view of the Bible, as you read through the Bible in a year, there are some things in the Bible that will take your breath away. Because it is not all pretty. Just as Jesus identifies with us warts and all, the Bible identifies with us and talks about their heroes, warts and all. And so this first mother of Jesus we come to is named Tamar. And we find her story and the story about people surrounding her in Genesis chapter 38. I'm going to back up a little bit into 37 and then just talk a little bit beyond that as well. But um, Tamar, like the four others that we read about today, or the, th the um, three others actually that we read about today, are women that even the New Testament talks about comes from a group of people who would be on the outside looking in, in a sense. They are people that would not naturally be chosen because they were not even born into the Jewish race. They were Gentiles. There were people that were generally, by the Jewish people, looked down upon or at least not embraced. They were not, quote, God's chosen people, unquote. 
but they were chosen. And to understand Tamar, we have to move back before Tamar was even born. Because we have to see the main, one of the main players in the story, whose name is Judah, the fourth-born son of Jacob, also known as Israel. And as we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 37, we find a picture of real betrayal. Because at this time there are 11 sons. And there is one who is the favored. Loved by his father, doted upon by his father, loved more than any of the others. And his brothers hate him for it. They can hardly even stand to look at him. And so when Joseph is sent down to check on his brothers, jealousy turns to murderous intent. And they say, let's be done with him once for all. Now Reuben, the firstborn, decides this is not right. And this is one place where Reuben stands up and says, we can't do this, and, but he can't prevail against his brothers. So he says, rather than kill him, let's just throw him into a cistern, which is kind of a hollowed out place in the ground where they can collect rainwater during the wet season, so they'll have it during the dry season. It's kind of a, an irrigation kind of thing. It's a water storage place that's dry because it's in the dry season. So let's just throw him into the cistern, and it's his plan to go back later and to rescue uh, Joseph and to take him back to dad. So Reuben stands out, at, uh, in, at least in this point, as somewhat as the hero of the story. But as things unfold, a group of merchants or a group of travelers come along that are Midianites, and it is Judah that comes up with an idea. Why kill him when we can make a buck? And so he says, rather than kill him, let's sell him. Because he'll be taken off to wherever it is that Midianites take people. And we'll never have to see him again. We'll never have to deal with him about. And we can split the profits. So off Joseph goes. Reuben comes back. And it is Judah who is the prime betrayer of his brother. Now they all participate. But it is Judah who comes up with the idea. Now they've got the problem of dad. How are they going to explain this to dad? So they take the coat, the famous coat of, Jacob, of Joseph, and they soak it with, with blood, with the blood of a goat, and they take it back to dad and say, it looks like an animal got him, too bad for Joseph. And Jacob is inconsolable. He betrays not only Joseph, he betrays his dad. Now this begins to eat at you, doesn't it? What seems like such a good idea in the beginning doesn't seem like such a great idea when it begins to unfold. And as we move into Genesis chapter 39, we see some very, very striking parallels. 
there's always a question, why is Genesis 39, or 38 rather, why is Genesis 38 even included in the Bible? There are a lot of questions about that because if you just look at it on the surface, it looks like somebody wrote Genesis 37, they wrote Genesis 39, and then somebody else kind of said, you know what, here's an interesting story, let's stick that in there. It looks almost like a parenthesis, but it's not a parenthesis. It's an important part of the story because there's somewhat of a comparison that moves on here between Judah and Joseph. The very same wording is used in Genesis chapter 38 where it says, at that time Judah left his brothers and went down to stay. In Genesis chapter 39, it talks about Joseph going down to Egypt, literally. Now Joseph goes down as a captive. Judah goes down voluntarily. We're going to find that Judah, or that Joseph, stands up and acts responsibly before God, even though he is in a position of suffering and, and, and stress. We find that Judah goes down to uh, Adullam, and with a period of comfort and ease, finds himself, instead of in godliness, in godlessness. We find that Joseph goes down to, to Egypt and stands resolute and firm against sexual sin. Jodas, Joseph, Judah rather goes down to Adullam and falls into sexual sin. There's this contrast that is moving back and forth between the righteousness of Joseph and the unrighteousness of Judah. But the problem is Judah does indeed go down. He isolates himself, he becomes estranged from his family, and there seems to be a strong connection between the moment when, when Judah acts in these supreme acts of betrayal and he simply says, I've got to get out of here. Now when it says, at that time Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira, it sounds like he went down for a few days, doesn't it? It sounds like he said, you know, I'll go down and spend some time with a friend. We're talking about almost 22 years. We're not talking about a brief little sojourn. We're talking about a man who is changing his locale, who is isolating himself from his family, who is saying, that's enough. Will there be anything ever powerful enough to bring him back to his family? Judah, the, for the fourth born of the family. Will there be anything to take him back? He goes down and settles in Adullam. And it says, There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave him the birth of the son who was named Er. She conceived again and gave birth to a son named Onan. And she gave birth a third time to a son and named him Shelah. And it was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. So here's the point. He has left the place where he's supposed to be. Joseph left involuntarily. Judah leaves voluntarily. And Judah settles in. He is no longer setting his lot with God's people. He is setting his lot with the Canaanites. That's where he feels at home, and that's where he is moving in to live. You know what? I think we see a lesson here that 
Nothing destroys your future like unresolved sin in your past. That when you step into the kind of sin that Judah has stepped into, and you just cover it up and act as though nothing has happened, and you just walk along and say, I can do what I do. I can live my life. I can wall this off. I can keep it separated. I can keep it segregated. That it won't affect my walk with God. It won't affect my relationship with people. It won't affect my moral ethical standing. It won't affect anything. I can just wall it off. You can't wall it off. When you have unresolved sin in your life, when you have sin that you refuse to recognize, that you refuse to deal with, when you refuse to confess, when you have that thing kind of operating in your life, you're going to find that there are two things that happen, two reasons it begins to happen. Number one, you stand guilty. Now, some of you feel guilty when you're not guilty. And some of you don't feel guilty when you ought to feel guilty. Because real guilt has a real purpose. The real purpose of guilt is, is, the value of real guilt is it's like a symptom to a disease. Real guilt tells you when something is wrong and you ought to fix it. And when you don't fix it, that disease just keeps maturing inside of your heart and eating away at you. It eats away at your soul. False guilt, on the other hand, when we feel bad about something and we're not supposed to, it just paralyzes us and keeps us from doing anything we're supposed to do. The secret is to make sure you know which is which. Judah has sinned and refuses to do anything about it, and it's eating his soul. The other thing that happens is God has an interest in keeping us uncomfortable. God has an interest in driving us back to him and so he uses that in our lives to drive us back to where we ought to be. And Judah doesn't care. He's going to spend the next 22 years because he lives in that area long enough to find a girl, to make arrangements, to get married, to raise his kids to marriageable age, which his first child is probably 15 years or so. They married very young. And so he's there. As far as Judah is concerned, he's there for the duration. That's his new home. That's where he's comfortable. That's where he lives. Nothing destroys your future where God wants you to be like unresolved sin in your presence, in your presence. And you see the extent of this because when it comes time to get married, when it time, comes time to find a wife for his son, and that's what they did. You found a wife for your son. They didn't go on dates or anything like that. You made the arrangements. You made the connections with the other family. And you just put people together, arranged marriages. Whether you like it or not, that's how it worked. And so the purpose of those marriages is to raise a family, to raise heirs, and he marries off his daughter, or he marries off his first son named Er, E-R, to Tamar. 
And finally, Tamar comes onto the scene. Tamar, there's no reason to believe that Tamar is not very young. 14, 15 years old in that area. No reason to believe she's any older than that because they married very young. And the purpose is to have children. Now, the Bible specifically says we don't know anything about heir except that he erred. He was wicked before the Lord. Now, you have wicked and you have wicked. You have wicked that is your normal run-of-the-mill run wicked. You have your wicked that is your strike-em-dead wicked. An heir's wicked was the second kind. The Bible is very clear that there was a judgmental statement made by God and because of his wickedness, he was struck dead by God. We don't know exactly how, but it is clear that it was bad enough that it is recognized enough that this was God's judgment on air. And he is childless. Now for Tamar, she didn't ask for this man. She was put with him. She got the man that her dad told her that she was going to marry. And she is left in a very vulnerable position because being a widow in that time, you have no resources. You are basically walled off from your own family and you, you, you've got no means of support. It is a very difficult position. And so from this wayward son, the rule kicks into place called leveret marriage. Now we're going to advance to the slide, and then we're going to go back to this previous one if we can do that. Because the law of leveret marriage kicks in. And for you and me, this is very, very strange. Okay? We'll just kind of put that up front. And most of you women out there are going to go, but this is the way leveret marriage works. And they didn't go, they went, thank God for leveret marriage. Because if there is no heir, if there is no male son, then the woman has no resources because women cannot inherit property. They have no property rights. They have no family rights. They are, for legal purposes, they are non-persons. Don't like it, but that's the way it is. And so the way it works is the person who is deceased has no heir, so his property now kind of fades into the larger family. So it's important for the protection of that widow that she be, if you will, I know, we've got to work through this. She gets transferred, if you will, to the next son. And it's his responsibility to father a son that will belong to the first husband. Sufficiently confused? Okay, so the husband that's died now has an official heir who inherits all of his property and his share of the eventual inheritance. You with me? Not if you're with me. Okay, mostly. Okay, 
Now, being the firstborn, there are special privileges that would go to heir's heir. Because heir's heir receives a double portion. Because the firstborn got two portions. So you take the number of children. In this case, there's three sons. The first son gets two portions, so that's two portions. Then the second one gets one, and the third gets one. So there are four portions, and 50% of it goes to heir number one. So, Tamar gets transferred to Onan, son number two. And something very bad starts to kick in. Because you see, Tamar didn't ask for a wicked husband to begin with. And she didn't really ask for Onan. She was just transferred across. And he has a responsibility to her and to his dead brother. And he says, why fulfill my responsibility when I can get 50% of the inheritance instead of 25%. So he decides to enjoy all of the benefits of marriage without the responsibility. So he uses the only means of birth control available. He withdraws at the key moment. And we know all of the rules and all of the things, how it works, that it's a very unreliable method of birth control, and there are lots of reasons why she could have or should have gotten pregnant. But God has an interest in revealing this duplicity in Onan's part. Here's a woman who is defenseless, who is young, who has no resources, and once again, she is being victimized by people who shouldn't be doing this. And God does not like that. God does not like when people who are advantaged, when people who are powerful, when people who are in control take advantage of people who are disadvantaged and people who have no resources. And so God strikes Onan down. He dies. Once again, a widow. What is going to happen? Now, two sons, very close in age, have died, and once again she's a widow. And Judah knows his responsibility. We can flip back to the previous slide. This selfish son has died. And Judah gives a promise. A promise that he knows he has no intention of keeping. He says, okay, look, go back to your father's household. So now he doesn't want anything to do with her. She's out of his tent. She's out of his line. She's out of his thinking. Go back to the tent of your father and live as a widow. It's getting complicated. Stay with me because it gets even more interesting. Go back and live as a widow, and when Sheila gets old enough, you can be his husband, uh, his wife. Meanwhile, he's thinking, she married Er, and he's dead. She married Onan, and he's dead. What's going to happen if she marries Sheila? He's going to be dead too. But now wait a minute. Why did they die? 
They didn't die because of her. They died because of them. And it was apparent. On the surface, it was apparent because they, they had sinned against God. They were paying the price for their own sin. And yet this father, this faithless father, who is in complete denial, is casting the blame on the victim. He's saying it's her fault when she had nothing to do with it. She is the one who is being taken advantage of, not the one who is causing the problem. And everybody in the world, as Judah speaks, knows what's going on. Everybody understands that Sheila's going to grow up and he's never going to be her husband. He's never going to fulfill her responsibility. And this poor woman, this poor young girl is looking at a life that, as far as she can tell, has no future. There is no way that she can see that this winds up good. Well, a plan is hatched. And this plan says a lot about Tamar, but it says a lot about Judah. Because it comes to sheep shearing time and Judah goes down to the sheep shearers. And she comes up with a plan. Here's the plan. And it isn't pretty. It's hard to deal with. But you have to understand what she is doing. Because it is not purely sexual sin that she's involved in. She is claiming her right Because if none of the sons is available, it is the responsibility, if he is able, of the father-in-law to provide an heir. Again, it's very strange sounding to our ears, isn't it? Very strange sounding. But you have to understand the importance to that son heir to have a, a, um, a descendant that follows after him. She says, I will take off my widow's clothes and I will put on the clothes of a temple prostitute, of a shrine prostitute, and I will go and I will sit down by the road that I know that Judah is going to travel down. Now, I want you to let that sink in for a minute. What does that say that Tamar knows about Judah? Doesn't take a lot of imagination. There's some precedent here. Because Judah's wife has died, the time for mourning has passed, their needs or whatever excuse you want to make, but she knows that something's going to happen if she just presents the opportunity. And sure enough, true to form, entirely predictable, the man who should have known better goes down and sees her. Now, he doesn't recognize her because she's probably veiled. And she is recognizable because the man that he is with calls her a shrine prostitute. And that is, believe it or not, worse than just going to a regular one. Because the shrine prostitute carries with it certain pagan implications. The reason that people went into this kind of a person was to increase the yield of the crops 
to increase the yield of the wool that the lambs would, that the sheep would yield in terms of sharing. There are pagan implications here, and we say, what is this man doing? What is this man doing? In, in kind of old ways of speaking and without perhaps really understanding, everybody used to talk about what a vile woman this was. But in reality, she is claiming her rights by leveret marriage. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that God says, yay, because we're going to talk about that in a minute. But what I am suggesting to you is that what Judah does is pure evil. It's pure evil. And he moves down that road and he goes into her and comes out and says, I don't have any means of payment. I don't have any sheep with me. I don't have any goats with me. I don't have anything to give you. And she simply says, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you leave a deposit? Why don't you leave a deposit? Give me the seal. That's the thing that you use to sign contracts with that it's official and the cord that you hang it around your neck with so people know I didn't just kind of steal it? And why don't you leave your staff that says this belongs to Judah? Now, it doesn't seem really smart to me, but he says, sure. I'm telling you, sin makes you crazy. I, I hope you know that. Sin makes you crazy. And you do stupid things when you start walking into sin. Don't forget that. Because things you don't think you would ever do, you do. And things that somebody would, will, will look back and say, what were you thinking? That's exactly what you step into. So he goes off, sends his, sends his friend back with a goat, she takes off her clothes, puts back on her widow's clothes, and goes home and just kind of hides away the stuff. He goes back and says, anybody seen that shrine prostitute that was sitting here the other day? And everybody says, no, nobody was here. He looks around and goes back to Judah and says, well, I couldn't find her. We took the goat and we tried to find her, but we couldn't find her. Nobody knows where she was or who she was. And, and listen to what Judah says. He says, you know what? We did our best. Let's not push it. Otherwise, I'll be a laughing stock. I will look foolish. Judah knows what he's doing is crazy. All right, so we fast forward. There is a point to this story, by the way. We fast forward three months. And Tamar, on that one encounter, is pregnant. Now, I want you to think just a minute. Where is Tamar living again? Is she living in the tent of Judah? No, she's living in the tent as a widow of her father. And she's found pregnant. And word gets back to Judah. It says, your daughter-in-law is pregnant. And it's like, a nuclear meltdown. He is furious. Why? 
because his daughter-in-law, that he would not stand by as he was supposed to stand by, that he would not do honor by when he was supposed to do honor by her, his daughter-in-law has now dishonored him in some strange fashion. And so he calls out, and he says two words in Hebrew that are translated bringer and burner. It's not enough that she be executed. He's not, not even executed according to this custom. He's going to bring her and throw her down and burn her alive. He is furious because she has entered into sexual sin. Anybody see a problem with that? Anybody see maybe a little bit of double standard? Anybody see that maybe, just maybe, this moral outrage is a little bit feigned? Moral indignation is a dangerous thing because moral indignation can destroy because it permits envy or hate to be carried out in the name of virtue. What was Judah doing? He was outraged because I have been wronged. He was outraged because how dare a woman participate in this kind of activity when it was predictable what he was going to do. When it was understood what he was going to do. How blind can we get? This is what sin does to you. It puts you into this position where you just look at others and condemn others for the very thing that you yourself are doing. Double standards, double standards are often perpetrated by the powerful over the powerless, by the advantaged over the disadvantaged, and they are an affront to God. They are an affront to God. I want you to listen to a very controversial passage that must be taken in its context. But God says in Hosea chapter 4, verse 14, I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with the shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. You condemn these people that do this thing when you yourself do the very same thing. You look at people and try to pull out the speck that is in their own eye, Jesus says, when you have a plank in yours. This is often the case. And so, as she is being dragged out to be burned, I will tell you that I believe that Tamar knew exactly what was going to happen. I believe that Tamar had planned this all along and planned it well, and she is playing a very, very dangerous game. Because people of power do not often admit their wrong. And she sends out with these tokens, with this deposit that Judah has left, and said, the man who gave me this is the father of my child. And something amazing 
something astounding happens. The reason that I believe that Tamar is on this list is right here, right now. When Judah looks at that, and God breaks through. He breaks through years of haze. He breaks through years of sin. He breaks through years of denial. He breaks through years of rebelling against God. When Judah says, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, Sheila. She's right, and I'm wrong. Now, get it clear. God does not say here that she was unequivocally righteous. It's an important point. We're not endorsing the methodology here. But there was a purpose in what's going on. She was claiming her right of leveret marriage that was denied her. And Judah, there was no guarantee that this man of power, this man of authority, would somehow or another break through. But he does. And he backs off and he says, let her alone. Now I want to do a little timeline here. The timeline between Joseph being taken to Egypt, we're back with Joseph now, it's not a mistake, Joseph being taken to Egypt and of, of uh, the children of Israel going back to Egypt in terms of this new encounter with Joseph is about 22 years. Now, if we do the math of how much time it's going to take for, for Judah to move to this area, to get married, to raise kids of marriageable age, for all of this to happen, you're hitting pretty close to 20 years. That follow along? That makes sense? The timeline fits. Judah recognizes his sin. Judah will go back to Egypt with his family, and when the time comes for Benjamin, the younger brother of Joseph, to be called to Egypt, And when he is taken captive, it is Judah who says, I will stand for my brother. Something has happened in the life of this man. This man who was supremely selfish, this man who was supremely sinful, something has happened in the life of this man to change him. That there is a breakthrough. It's significant that there are reasons why why Perez is named Perez from a merely physical standard. But the name means breaking out. And I want to tell you, God broke out through that child in all kinds of ways. He broke out in the life of Judah. He broke out in terms of of giving Tamar the recognition that she would have. That more than 1,700 years later, her name would appear as a woman who who was the mother of Perez. And I want you to think about what happened. Because Judah is the fourth born child of Jacob. There is Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then Judah. That means Judah has no shot at being the firstborn except for the fact that Reuben 
and Simeon and Levi are all disqualified. And suddenly, Judah steps into the role of being the firstborn through whom Jesus Christ will come. A man who is prepared to step into the role, a man who becomes the redeemer of his brother, if you will, the savior of his brother, when he believes that he's going to be put to death by Joseph. He's ready to spend the rest of his life in jail so that his brother might live in liberty. Something has happened to this man. He is a more noble person. He is a more noble individual from a most unexpected source. From a woman who had lived a life being legitimately victimized by people, a woman who had been taken advantage of by everyone she saw, and yet there was a breakthrough. There was a breakout. God did marvelous things through an anonymous Canaanite woman to the extent that suddenly she finds herself as the mother of the one who broke out in so many ways, Paris. And I want to tell you, God wants to break out in our lives. He does. He doesn't want to be satisfied with people who just live the lives of victims. He doesn't want to live... He, he wants people who, in, in the midst of adversity, will look to him for direction, will look for him for guidance. Now, again, we don't want to read too much into the methodology that Tamar uses, but we want to see a woman who was an anonymous woman who was used by God and raised to a point of significance. What made her significant? What made her significant was not that she suffered. What made her significant was God. And she changed the heart, I believe, of a man who had two decades of walking and rebelling against God by a godly confrontation, by calling him to account on what he had done. I want to tell you, there are people who appear in this genealogy that don't have any right to be there. But Tamar is a woman who shone like a, shows like a star in this, in this genealogy, in this, in this family tree. She's a woman who can look, Jesus can look back to and say, I am the descendant of Tamar, a woman used by God to bring a patriarch back to him. And God can use you too. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you worked through the disadvantaged. You worked, you work through people who are used. That, Lord, the reality is not are we disadvantaged or not because Judah needed to come back to God just like Tamar needed to look to you. Lord, we pray. We pray that you will cause us to see that there is no double standard. That, Lord, when we are guilty of sin, we are all guilty of sin before you. There are no privileges that get a free pass. But, Lord, when we look to you in forgiveness, we all come the same way. We all must be forgiven, Lord. There is not, there, there's none righteous, no, not one, Lord, that we all 
come the same way back to you for forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, that there is recuperation and restoration. We thank you that Judah, Lord, in spite of his wandering, found himself in that list of the family tree of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we are, in a sense, descended from that tree as we have believed in Christ and been adopted into that family. Thank you and praise you, Lord, that in you we find significance and reality. Thank you, Lord, for this mother of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.